Well, we're in a series that we're calling Unstoppable because we want to dig into God's word to see what is it about Christianity and the gospel that has not just kept it alive, but caused it to thrive for over 2,000 years now. And we're digging into God's word to do something that we always have to keep doing to clarify what is it that God does for us and through us that always exceeds anything we ever try to do for him. Turn with me in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 1. Turning in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 1, where I'm going to read a passage that I think is so good that we could just read it, sing some more songs, and then head on out of here rejoicing. But since you rolled out of bed and came on over here, I'm going to keep you longer than that. And I want to ask you to stand as I read it because I don't want you to take a mental vacation because I'm going to start reading in chapter 1, verse 19. And I'm going to read all the way through to the end of chapter 2 because it's just that good. Colossians chapter 1, beginning in verse 19. For it pleased the Father that in Him, Jesus, all the fullness should dwell. And by him to reconcile all things to himself, by him, whether things on the earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. And you, who once were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he has reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and irreproachable in his sight. If indeed you continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast, and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel, which you heard, which was preached to every creature under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister, I now rejoice in my sufferings for you, and I fill up in my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ for the sake of his body, which is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God, which was given to me for you to fulfill the word of God. The mystery, which was hidden from ages and from generations, but now has been revealed to his saints. To them, God willed to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is this, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom, that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. To this end I also labor, striving according to his working, which works in me mightily. For I want you to know what a great conflict I have for you and those in Laodicea, and for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love and attaining to all riches of the full assurance of understanding to the knowledge of the mystery of God, both of the Father and of Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Now this I say, lest anyone should deceive you with persuasive words, plausible sounding words, fine sounding words. For though I am absent in the flesh, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and steadfastness of your faith in Christ. As you have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith as you've been taught, abounding in it with thanksgiving. Beware, lest anyone cheat you. Through philosophy and empty deceit, according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him, all the fullness of the Godhead dwells bodily, and you are complete in him who is the head of all principality and power. In him you were also circumcised with the circumcision not made with hands by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism, in which you also were raised with him through faith in the working of God, who raised him from 
the dead. And you, being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he is made alive together with Christ, having forgiven you all trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, and he's taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. Therefore, let no one judge you in food or in drink or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbath, which are a shadow of things to come, but the substance is of Christ Let no one defraud you of your reward, taking delight in false humility and worship of angels, intruding into those things which he has seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom all the body, nourished and knit together by joints and ligaments, grows with the increase which is from God. Therefore... If you died with Christ from the basic principles of the world, why, as though living in the world, do you subject yourself to regulations? Do not touch, do not taste, do not handle, which all concern things which perish with the using, according to the commandments of doctrines of men. These things indeed have an appearance of wisdom. In self-imposed religion, false humility and the neglect of of the body, but are of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. Now, here's what's going on in this letter to the Christians at Colossae. Here's the deal in this letter. And I think it's interesting because Paul is doing something here that he worked on relentlessly throughout his entire ministry, if you track with him. And it's something we have to stay focused on today as well. What am I talking about? False teachers and false doctrine that would lead you away from Christ. There's false teachers and doctrines that would say, don't ever go there to begin with. But it's not just that. There's theirs that say, oh, that's a fine starting place, but now you need to. You start there, but you can't stay there. And Paul, if you track with him through his letters, you will see he addresses this on a regular basis. In fact, I do believe if you read the 14 letters of Paul to the churches, you'll be struck by how often he revisits the gospel. Who Jesus is and what he's done. Because Paul was an evangelist, yes, that wanted to present Jesus Christ to people who didn't know him. But he also constantly revisited for believers what the gospel is and who Jesus is and what he's done and why. And so here's what you find. When you read his 14 letters, sure, you'll find that Paul addresses a litany, a litany of church problems that are bound to happen whenever you put a group of Christians together. Sure, there's things he had to talk about. He had to have some housekeeping stuff and sort some things out. But oh, when you read his letters... Paul's letters are filled with more than just church, housekeeping, conflict, resolution. Oh my goodness. And the book of Colossians, I think, is just the best example of what I'm talking about. Because when you read Colossians chapter 1 and chapter 2, it's like Paul serves as some kind of gospel spiritual conductor that is leading a glorious symphony of praise for who Jesus is and what he's done. Who Jesus is and what he's done. Don't miss out. Don't move on. It's who Jesus, it just soars. In fact, here's what's interesting. Chapter one and chapter two of Colossians has 52 verses comprised of almost 1,300 words and only four commands tucked down into this glorious tapestry. Just four commands. Everything else is indicative. Everything else is he's just telling you what God has done. And here's what he's done. And here's who Christ is. And here's what he's done. And here's what he's done. And here's what he's done. It is not a do, 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 do. There's just four commands tucked into this glorious tapestry of look who Jesus is and what he's done. Paul wants to make sure you understand, folks, that Jesus is better than anyone else or anything else 
this, this, this world could ever come up with. So I want to show you, I want to show you what these four commands are, and then we're going to dig into why. Why are these four commands so important that are woven into this glorious tapestry? Look at them with me. The first command that you find is in verse 6. As you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. It's in the imperative. It's a command. Walk in him. And that was a Greek word that simply meant your life. You live in Christ. Live with Christ. Walk with Christ. It's all about Christ, not you moving on to another system and something you're trying to do in your own strength. Commanded. The same way you started with Christ, you received him. Walk in him. Walk in him. The second command you find in verse 8. Beware. It's command. Watch out. Stay on alert. Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. Watch out. The third command you find in verse 16. Therefore, let no one judge you. It was the word crino that meant don't let them put you under their standard and judge you and say, oh, oh yeah, you started with Jesus, but now you got to do all this. You need certain feast days and certain calendar things and certain traditions and certain things you got to stay up with. Let no one judge you. It's a command. Don't let it happen. Don't let someone put you under that, that now they say, here's the system you've got to keep. I know you started with Jesus. That's a great start, but. And then the final command you find in verse 18. Let no one defraud you. It's a command. Don't let someone cheat you. Don't let someone con you. Don't let someone scam you out of what you already have with saying, oh, it's about worship of angels and there's a secret initiation and there's higher levels and there's more that I know that you don't know. And for seventy nine ninety five, I'll send you my book and call before midnight and you get the John the, Bob, John the Baptist shower curtain thrown in. He's saying, don't do that. Don't go there. Don't let anyone cheat you out of. So those are the only four commands you find in it. So here's what I want to do in the time that remains. I want to give you three warnings that I think capture those four commands that Paul gives us in this tapestry. Here's the first, number one. Number one, Paul says, watch out for worldly philosophies that deny or discount the person and work of Jesus Christ. They just deny it altogether or discount it altogether. You can find this command in verse 8. Look at it again. Beware. Lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. You see, the word philosophy, folks, is made up of two Greek words right there. Philos, love, and sophia, wisdom. It's the love of wisdom. There is nothing wrong with philosophy. There's nothing wrong with loving wisdom, folks. But what you find in the scriptures is to love Wisdom alone, apart from the person of Jesus Christ, is to be doomed to a life of always pursuing wisdom and knowledge and never arriving, never attaining, never arriving, never attaining, just pursuing, just pursuing, just pursuing. It's what you see all around us today. On campus after campus and academic circle after academic circle and blog after blog and book after book and television series after television series and smart person after smart person after smart person with lots of degrees and and acrostics at the end of their name and sometimes at the front and end of their name. Pursuing, but not arriving. In fact, listen, here's why. Get this, and it'll encourage, should encourage everyone in this room. I'm making an assumption that you're not that smart. Because I know I'm not either. This should encourage you. Wisdom and truth are not ultimately determined by your IQ, but your personal view of the greatest person who ever lived in history, Jesus Christ. What, listen to me. What you decide about Jesus Christ, the person of Jesus Christ, will ultimately determine the degree to which you ever attain wisdom and truth. That you really get it. That you get there. In fact, listen to me. Here's what 2 Timothy 3.7 says about anyone who makes the pursuit of knowledge and wisdom a purely 
academic endeavor apart from the need for a creator God through his son, Jesus Christ. If you just make wisdom and knowledge and purely academic endeavor and pursuit, 2 Timothy 3.7 describes you, the path that you're doomed to spend your life on. And it says, these are people who are always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Now, don't hear what I'm not saying. Don't hear that, that, that these would be stupid people. Oh, no, no, no. That's not, what, that's not true at all. You can become really smart. Doesn't mean you can't become super smart about a lot of things and know a lot of things and have insights about a lot of things. You could even win some awards and get recognition and accolades beyond many other people in our world. But listen to me, what you will not get that the human heart actually longs for most is the truth of who we are, why we're here, and what life is really all about. You won't get that apart from Jesus Christ. I could multiply examples of this, folks. I could stay the rest of the hour just multiplying examples of what this looks like, but let me just give you one. One. Dr. Robert Jastrow served for over 20 years as the director of the Goddard Institute of Space Studies of NASA and as an adjunct professor of geophysics at Columbia University, as well as being the author of the most widely used textbook on astronomy in the United States. So could we all just agree right now, he's probably smarter than anybody in this room. And you say, if you say it differently, you're probably just a very arrogant person, so I got a different sermon for you. He's probably... Smarter than anybody in this room. And yet, I want you to hear what he said in a very honest interview. And I quote. He said, just as I cannot believe there was a creator, I also cannot believe that this all happened by chance. Which implies that there was a creator. You see, I am in a completely hopeless bind. And I stay there. Again, I find it hard to believe that this is all a matter of only atoms and molecules. So I try to fit into my concept of the world the conclusion that there's a larger force of some kind which we could call God. But I find that I cannot accept that idea. I'm a materialist. I believe the world is entirely made up of material substances. And when you specify the atoms and molecules and laws by which they interact, then you have done it all. There's nothing more to be said or inserted into your model of the universe. But I find this unsatisfactory. In fact, it makes me uneasy as I feel like I'm missing something. And I will not find out what I'm missing within my lifetime. Now, folks, when I, when I hear a person talk that way, it doesn't cause me to rage against unbelievers. It doesn't make me mad. It makes me incredibly sad. Sad. That's what 2 Timothy 3, 7 is. When you rule out Jesus and push him off the table and make knowledge and wisdom a sheer academic endeavor and pursuit... Here's what's going on with that Dr. Jastro, and it's the same with any one of you sitting in this room. The reason he's in this hopeless bind and he thinks he's going to stay there is because you are created in the image of God. And so your soul, with every breath of your lungs, quietly screams out, there is a God and I need more. There's got to be more than what we just see and touch and feel and taste. You, Ecclesiastes says he's placed eternity in your heart. You've got an infinitesimal space in there that only God can fill. Just knowledge and understanding and pleasure and partying and kids and grandkids and adding to a home and travel and you name it will never fill that gap. You need God through his son, Jesus Christ. Why are people who rule Jesus out and simply pursue wisdom and knowledge doomed to that kind of path? Well, I'll tell you why. It's because we've, we've already read in Colossians 2.3. Look at Colossians 2.3 again that tells us Jesus is the one 
in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Here's what I love. That word treasures right there is the Greek word thesaurus. You turn to a thesaurus when you think whatever, whatever, whatever word means this word. Whatever word you can think of for wisdom, every synonym you could come up with, Jesus has. He is a thesaurus of wisdom, and he doesn't just have a little bit of it. He's got it. He's a treasure storehouse of wisdom and knowledge. And so when you refuse to come to him, you are doomed to always learning, but never able to come to the knowledge of the truth because Jesus doesn't just have some truth. Jesus is the truth, the way, the life. And you need him. You need him. It's not optional. So what is our problem, folks? I hope it, I hope it can help you. Don't get mad at your unbelieving friends. Don't get mad at the professors on university campuses that are saying what they're saying, writing what they're writing, doing what they're doing. It is not an intellectual problem. It's a heart problem. And unless God had taken out your heart of stone and thrown on the lights of understanding, you too would be going down that same path, cheering him or her on. God had to make you alive, and in his mercy he did so. Because the human heart, apart from God's grace, wants to turn to anything and everywhere but God, but Jesus, but God. But it can't be that. It can't be that. It can't be that. The 18th and early 19th centuries saw an explosion of alternative philosophies as to how you could find meaning and purpose in life. Something to frame your life up with and go with that could make life good. And oh, by the way, could turn our society into some kind of utopia. Human beings are always touting that. That we're just, we're so close to making this happen. In Germany, Immanuel Kant gave the birth of rationalism. Basically, he just said, look to your mind. Look to your mind. Reason alone is enough. Pure human reason, you can think your way. If you'll just meditate on it, contemplate it, incubate the problem, you can come up with what is right or wrong for you. We're just smart enough. Look to your mind. But over in Switzerland, the Swiss philosopher in Geneva, Jean-Jacques Rousseau, he said, no, 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 don't look to your mind. He, he gave rise to the birth of romanticism where he said, look to your heart. We got any of that still going on? Just watch a Hallmark made for television movie. Listen, ideas have consequences. Everything that you still see going in our culture can be tra- traced back to some theme or river of ideas. These things matter. Oh, you look to your heart and he's the one that proposed, oh my goodness, you don't need an outside source or someone like Jesus to inform you. You're just good enough. If, if you, here was his belief. He, he decided that the human heart was a beautiful, unfolding flower that was naturally good. I'm like, did you ever have children? <laughs> did you ever get honest about yourself And think, why am I this bad? Why am I this? Why do I have these thoughts? Like, oh my. A beautiful unfolding flower that was naturally good and would get even better if you would just consistently follow the pull of your heart. And whatever your heart says, do it. There's where we get that. Go with your heart. Go with your heart. Go with your heart. (laughs) Don't go with your heart. Your heart is so wicked. Desperately wicked. So we got... People saying, oh, whatever you think, you can, you can sort this out. Look to the mind, look to the heart. hundred years later, back in Germany again, Friedrich Nietzsche said, you're both wrong. Don't look to your mind, don't look to your heart. And he gave us, you just look to your own willpower. Look to your own willpower. Just take power and control of your life. We've got infomercials like that, right? That, this hasn't gone away. You just take power and control of your life and you decide what you want to do and you do it. This was early Nike. Just do it. You just do it. And oh, by the way, he gave us, and you better just do it because God is dead. He's the one that coined the whole movement. God is dead. I got news. Nietzsche's dead and God is alive and well. God is alive and well. Oh my goodness. Now here's what I think is so interesting. Interesting. 
Here's these three philosophies with great implications that are rumbling around in our world. And I mean, people are buying the books and discussing it. And universities are talking about this. And there was great hope for a utopia. They're always talking about a utopia and how we can solve our biggest problems and make this a great place to live. It makes you wonder as you look at history over the period of these 150 years where these three ideologies were the rage. Why historians would even call this period the age of enlightenment. Do you know that? That's what they call this period, the age of enlightenment. But those same 150 years gave us two world wars that killed millions of people, including the rise of Nazi Germany and Hitler, who, by the way, completely loved Frederick Nietzsche and bought right into that with will power, as well as human reason, as well as the rise of communism with people like Joseph Stalin. You got you got Hitler killing millions of Jews and gypsies and saying, we will make a pure Aryan race and this will be a great utopic place to live. And then you got Joseph Stalin, horror of horrors, for the sake of communism, killing millions of his own people. This was the age of enlightenment with man's best ideas driving it. Listen to me, folks. Worldly philosophy is bankrupt because it's devoid of Jesus Christ, our only hope. But it's not just worldly philosophies. Paul gives us a second warning. He says, number two, watch out for religious philosophies that start with Jesus, but don't stay with Jesus because they insist that you need to add to who he is and what he's done. Oh yeah, Jesus is a great place to start. But you got to go on and you build on that. You add to it. It's still what you do, what you bring to the table. And it was a huge problem that Paul was constantly addressing. He was, and when you read the letters of Paul, if you really want to understand the letters of Paul, you have to have this in mind. He did always want to evangelize. But when you read Galatians, Corinthians, Romans, Colossians, Paul was always also wanting to anticipate that person who was in the middle of saying, Oh, I have Jesus, but also... I still need to be circumcised. Read Philippians 3. Read the book of Galatians. I have Jesus, but also I still need to work on my own righteousness. I have Jesus, but I also still need to keep the Ten Commandments. Read the book of Galatians. He was always addressing both. And basically, here's what Paul says in more than one way in his letters. You need to get rid of the but also. Drop the butt also. Never mind Colossians, Romans, Galatians. What about you today? This is still a problem today. I hope you understand. We're not sitting here looking at history saying, wow, how did they do that? Today, this is still a problem. Whether you say it out loud or you're just trying to live it quietly. Struggling, by the way, is how you'll do that. Quietly struggling. Do you have a theology of I have Jesus, but also I still need to, to stay in his favor or to get his favor or to really get all there is. If that's you, then you really don't understand the gospel. You really don't understand the gospel, folks, that the gospel is not about Jesus plus something else. The gospel is Jesus, period. It's what Paul was driving home to us in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 when I was preaching two weeks ago. Remember how he ended in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 in verse 30 where Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1 verse 30, But of him you are in Christ Jesus who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Get this. When you become a Christian, Jesus becomes your righteousness. Jesus becomes your holiness. Jesus becomes your wisdom. When you get Jesus, you get it all. You get it all. You're in Christ and these things are yours because you're in Christ. And so to drive home this warning, He actually gives us two different commands. You can see it in verse 16 and verse 18. Start with verse 16, where basically he says, don't let anyone call you away from your simple and single devotion to Christ. Don't. 
Look at it in verse 16, 17. Therefore, let no one judge you in food or drink or regarding a festival or new moon or Sabbath, which are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance is of Christ. Listen to me. Every step away from Jesus and back into religious trappings and traditions and externals is always a step towards confusion and back into darkness. All those things are just shadows. Jesus is the substance. Jesus is the light. Jesus is your hope. You never need something else. You always need more of Jesus. Now, listen to me. I want to be careful how I say this. You might find that there's something else you begin to do that gives you more of Jesus, but you never need something else. You always need to strengthen and cultivate and go more into your relationship with Jesus. For instance, you may determine, and oh, how I wish you would, I think I should read my Bible. Oh, man, I think so too. You're not going to know him with, apart from his word. You may say, I got to start reading my Bible. I need to get up earlier. 15 minutes and get quiet before the Lord and, and pray and meet with him. And I need to meditate on some scripture, maybe even memorize. I need to get in a small group with other believers at close range to help me in my walk and to enjoy him and, and hear from others how they're walking with him. All those things may be true, but don't make the mistake of thinking you need something else besides Jesus. You always need more of who? Jesus, not something else. We don't start with him and then move on to something else. It's the same thing that Paul was driving home to the believers in Corinth in his second letter to Corinthians, to the believers at Corinth. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 2 and 3, two of my all-time favorite verses in the Bible. He says in 2 Corinthians 11, 2 to 3, For I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. You need to understand Paul was more than a missionary. Paul was like a spiritual father. Paul was tender. Paul cared. He didn't just plant churches and move on. He was a super duper administrator. He had a heart that cared. And often you'll see this in his letters. He's like, oh my goodness, I started you with Christ. And now I hear you've moved on too. And others have come in and said, oh, but, oh, he's like, I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. For I betrothed you. That's an old fashioned way of saying engaged. I left you engaged to Jesus. You have a bridegroom. There's a wedding day coming. He's preparing for you. You're engaged to Jesus. You got the Holy Spirit as your engagement ring, as your pledge that he's coming. There's more, but I got the Holy Spirit right now. But there's coming. I'm going to be with my Savior. You have already been accepted and loved and given a robe of righteousness. He's like, I betrothed you to Jesus, one husband that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. What he's saying is when you turn to other things and you neglect your savior, you're adulterating yourself. You're not being faithful. Stay with Jesus. He's your bridegroom who's coming. And then he, notice the same kind of language is what we got going on in Colossians 2. But I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. Stay with Christ. He's a thesaurus of treasure, of wisdom and knowledge. There's always more. You're not going to tap it out and say, well, what else is there now? Just continue in your relationship with Jesus Christ. But look at the other command he gives regarding this. In verse 18, don't let anyone convince you there's something better or higher than Christ. Oh my goodness, we still got that going on? Woo! Look at verse 18. Let no one defraud you of your reward, taking delight in false humility, worship of angels. Are people still into angels? Oh, my goodness. Angel books sell. Angel TV programs. Jesus is better than angels. No angel died for you. No angel even understands the gospel. No angel is coming back. No angel is setting up a new heaven, a new earth. It's Jesus. Worship of angels. And it says, intruding. Intruding into those things which he has. And did you notice when I read it? I've got the New King James and maybe you do too. I said, intruding into those things he has seen. It's a mistranslation that New King James chose to say, not seen. ESV, NIV, everybody else says, intruding into those things he's seen. These are people who are saying, I've been places you haven't been. 
this is the little boy that dies during surgery and talks to his dad and they write a book and oh, two million copies sell. I don't need a little boy through his dad to tell me what's going on in the spiritual realm. I've got the Bible. It's better. And I know it's true. You want to know about heaven? Read this. You know where we're headed? Read this. Would you like to know some of the future? Read this. We're so drawn to, oh my goodness, a little boy died and came back and he says, please stop. We have no idea anything about that. There is so much good stuff in here that you haven't tapped into and meditated on and appreciated and enjoyed and lived out. You're just lining the pockets of a dad and his son. I hope this dad shares it with the son one day. Whatever they made off that. That word defraud means to con. Or scan, scam someone out of something that's rightfully theirs. He says, do not let anyone defraud you of your reward. What reward is he talking about? Now, I'll be honest. He could be talking about the judgment day when, when believers will be rewarded for the way they lived. But I don't think that is. In light of the context of chapter 1 and 2, where he's just been driving home to us, oh my goodness, look at what you've got. Look at what you've got. You're in a relationship with Jesus. You started with Jesus. Go deeper with Jesus. Be rooted in Jesus. In Jesus dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. You're complete in him. He's the thesaurus of wisdom and knowledge. It's Jesus. I think he's saying your reward, the best thing you got going, is your relationship with Jesus. Just go deeper with that. Delight in that. Worship him. Get to know him. Walk with him. Enjoy him. Don't lose that reward for somebody who's saying, I've been places you haven't. Because that word intruding in the Greek means to step into an inner shrine and to initiate others into something secret. So in Paul's day, guess what? It's the same way today. It was happening then. There were those saying, We've seen some things that you don't know from Scripture or you wouldn't know. And I'm here to tell you. I can tell you about it. I can take you there. You need us. He's like, it's false humility, worship of angels, intruding into things they say they've seen, secret initiate. When you get Jesus, you've got all there is. You don't need to be initiated into something higher. And there's another level and there's another zone and you're missing out. No. You're missing out when you move on from Jesus. That's the biggest loss. Don't move on from Jesus. But let me show you the final warning because these two first two concerns are outside of us. So we got the world offering up philosophies and an alternative to try to make sense of life without Jesus. We got false religious philosophies saying, oh yeah, Jesus, that's good, but it's not enough. Add to that. This one is not anybody outside of us threatening us. This one's on us. It's something we as human beings have a propensity to do. And so Paul says, warning number three, watch out for the human tendency to try and finish in your own strength what can only be done by a growing relationship with Jesus Christ. Look how Paul drives it home to us in six and seven. As you therefore have received Jesus, the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, established in the faith. That word rooted in the Greek is an agricultural term that meant a plant that is held firm and nourished. You will be held firm. The best way to survive in this world and to do well in our scary world today, full of confusion, full of threats, full of what's going to happen next, is to be rooted in Jesus Christ. That'll hold you firm and keep you nourished. You can run around with all the other secrets and books and tapes and conferences and videos and all that other stuff. And you'll still be blown away and you'll never be sure, do I have the right new idea? Is this enough? And it won't be. Simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. Rooted and grounded and built up in Jesus. 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 It's the same thing he's saying in verse 9 and 10. For in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and you are complete in him. You're not incomplete until you find someone else's system or someone else's whatever. You're complete in him. And then here's what I love. Right in the midst of this tapestry of who Jesus is and what he's done, and these warnings, Paul revisits the gospel what happened when Jesus died on the cross? That is one of my all-time favorite places in the Bible. 
Apart from Isaiah 53, that I think is one of the most wonderful explanations of what was happening on the cross, that really talks about what was happening, that he became sin for us and God the Father poured out his wrath on Jesus. These three verses in Colossians 2, I think, are the second best explanation in all the Bible of what was happening on the cross. Now, here's what I mean by that. You can read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and get lots of details, an historical account of eyewitnesses, what they saw at Golgotha. They saw him and what was going on. But what Colossians 2, 13 to 15 tells us are the things that no naked eye saw that day. The things he's telling us in verse 13, 14, 15, nobody saw, but it was happening. At that moment, it was happening, and it's real, and it has rocked our world and continued to change lives for 2,000 years now. I'm going to read it again because it's just so good. Verse 13, you... Being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he's made alive together with him, having forgiven you. How many of your trespasses? Say it again, that was weak. All trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us. That was a, in the Greek word there, it was a certificate of indebtedness. They would write on a certificate when you owed somebody something. Having wiped out the handwriting of her, you had a debt to a holy God you could never pay. You had a sin debt that held you responsible and should have sent you to an eternal hell that condemned you. It was a warrant for you to go to hell and that has been taken out of the way. How? Because he nailed it to the cross. That's what was happening. Jesus took the certificate of your indebtedness that should have, instead of holding it in your face, he put it on his son and he poured out his wrath for our sin on his son so that you, if you've put your trust in Christ, will never taste or face the wrath of God. Ever. Ever. You were dead spiritually, but now you're alive. You were guilty before a holy God and condemned to hell, but now you're forgiven. Your certificate of debt that was against you has been taken out of the way, wiped out, and your greatest enemy, Satan, and all the spiritual forces of darkness and wickedness at that moment on the cross, eyes couldn't see it, but at that moment on the cross were disarmed and defanged, and the power of sin and your fear of death that held all of us was broken by the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's what happened. So on your worst day, my friend, I don't mean to make light of life, but if you would understand that, that your biggest problem that you had a sin debt against you before a holy God that was your warrant to go to hell forever and be separated has been wiped out, taken out of the way, and your enemy is not your boss, is not somebody else. Your greatest enemy, Satan, has been disarmed and Jesus triumphed over them publicly. That's what happened at the cross, making a spectacle of them. I love the Greek word there because it's not just a regular word for triumph. He uses a word that was the word that was used whenever a Roman general went to another land and kicked butt and, and overcame an enemy, they would come back to Rome and they would bring some of the captive soldiers and march them down a big thoroughfare for a huge parade and shame them and have the soldiers who had fought valiantly and won honored, but especially the general would be honored in a parade that was called the Roman Triumph. When Paul used that word in verse 15, every believer in Colossae knew exactly what he was referring to. And here's what's really cool. The same word for triumph is used in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, when Paul says, But thanks be to God, who always leads us in his triumph and manifests through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of Christ. And you have a conquering, victorious King Jesus leading you. 
I know you can't see it, folks, but by faith, it's real now. And one day, someday, sooner than our world would like to believe, you will see King Jesus. He's not coming back as humble baby in a manger. He's coming back as King of kings and Lord of lords to smite the nations, to set all things right, to bring justice, to establish his kingdom, and to put us in the new heaven and new earth, and to wipe away every tear. No more sickness, no more sorrow, no more sin, no more death. No more confusion, no more darkness, because he is light. And you will have your Savior will be in his presence. Your husband will have arrived. And it's going to all be kicked off with an amazing marriage supper. Wow. So on your worst day, my friend, on your worst day, your biggest problem's been solved. And you're just an exile, a pilgrim, a stranger right now. You don't need something else. You need more of who? Jesus. Jesus. Now, that's the mind-blowing good news. You've heard it of what every believer here has. Every believer by faith has this. Doesn't matter how young you are, old, black, white, male, female, educated, not educated. It's yours. But let me tell you how this good news can become your good news. If you're here and you're not a Christian, you've heard what Jesus has done that you could never do for yourself, my friend, and you'll never philosophize yourself into a meaningful life of joy and purpose and meaning. It's gonna be chasing the wind. It's gonna be always learning and never coming to the knowledge of the truth. You need Jesus. Come to Jesus. But let me tell you how this good news becomes your good news. Look in verse 12. Verse 12 of Colossians 2. Buried with him in baptism, in which you also were raised with him through faith. Two words, through faith in the working of God. Oh, I love that. Notice, you exercise faith, God does the work. Through faith in the working of God. Folks, you don't work yourself into a condition of being accepted by God. You never could. You put your faith in what God did. That's why Christianity is spelled D-O-N-E and religion is spelled do. Do. Here's my list of what you need to do. Paul is saying through faith in the working of God and what he's done in his son, believe. Believe. Now, let me help you if you're sitting there saying, but I don't have faith. You Christians have faith. Not. You're putting your faith in something or someone or you couldn't do another day of this life. I'm just calling you to put it in Christ. Put it in Christ. That word faith that gets used there is the Greek word pistis. It's used 244 times in the New Testament. And it means a strong confidence in or reliance upon Someone or something as your object of trust. You're putting a strong confidence in or reliance upon something or someone to keep you going. I'm pleading with you. Put it in Christ. That something or someone else that you got going, it's going to evaporate sooner than you think. It's going to disappoint you sooner than you think. It'll be crushed sooner than you think and you'll be starting over again. Come to Christ. Put your faith. In Christ and the working of God. I want to close with an illustration. It's one of those things that just is emblazoned in my mind. You have those things happen in life. I'm not sure why or what, but a few stand out. Some things you can't remember at all, but other things is like it happened yesterday. This is one of those things for me. It's like it happened yesterday, but it was 15 years ago. Because it, it was like a stomach punch to me and a wave of just heaviness And despair swept over me at this moment. The kids were young and we were hiking in some trails in the woods near our house. We live in Fort Wright. Beautiful, bright. I think this is what it was. It was such a beautiful, glorious day. And in the moment I'm about to tell you, it's like the lights went out. Oh my goodness. Beautiful sunny day and we're hiking around with the kids in the woods. And all of a sudden we pop out of the woods and we realize we're in this huge cemetery on Dixie Highway. And so we start looking at tombstones. That's always fun. Just, you know, how old is this one? And, da, 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 da. and then we stumbled upon the tombstone of the deceased wife of an older gentleman in our neighborhood who we knew. We knew his wife had died. We knew he was ailing. 
not in good condition, needed constant help. We were trying to help him with his bird feeder and other things, but he was difficult. He was hard to love. He was bristly, burly. He would push you away. I mean, to give you an idea, this is a man who rebuked Vicky, my wife, for bringing homemade vegetable soup. And he stood on the porch and rebuked her and said, don't ever do that again. I'm not an invalid. But we're trying to love him anyway. But I tell you what, when I saw this and I laid eyes on the tombstone of his wife and I saw what he had chosen to have etched on the tombstone because it captured his philosophy and then I understood why he was the way he was. He had put on the tombstone of his wife the quote from Shakespeare's Macbeth that says, life's but a walking shadow. A poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage and then is heard no more. It's a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury signifying nothing. I mean, it's like the sun went out. I felt sick and my heart broke for him. Can you imagine trying to live life if that's what you believed? Can you imagine trying to make sense of life and death with a wife you've been married to for decades if that's what you believed? Folks, Colossians 1 and 2 offers so much more hope. Life is not summed up in a philosophy. It's found in a person. And his name is Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Oh God, thank you for your word. Thank you for not just pointing us to Christ, but keeping us in Christ and reminding us to go back there and stay there and go deeper with him and to cultivate our relationship with him. Oh God, thank you for your spirit living in us as the pledge, the engagement ring that there's more to come. And we have a bridegroom who is coming to get us and he loves us. Oh God, work in every heart here wherever people are spiritually. For believers, revive them in what they have and cause them to hold loosely to the things of this world and to delight in their Savior. For any unbeliever here today, open their eyes, snap the cords of philosophy and vanity that it binds them, that will keep them on a path of always learning but never able to come to the knowledge of truth and give them eyes to see the most beautiful being in the universe, Jesus Christ, who he is and what he's done. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.